Well, it was almost 50 years ago to the day that the movie The Exorcist was released. It tells the story of a little girl who is possessed by an ancient demon. She displays supernatural strength, becomes extremely vulgar, and although I can say I haven't seen the movie, but I know the scene where her head spins around. A pair of Catholic priests work together to perform an exorcism, and it works, but it costs both of them their lives. Anyway, that movie became one of the highest-grossing movies of all time. Adjusted for inflation, is about a billion dollars. Seems like everyone saw it at the time and had a massive effect on our culture. And ever since, every single year, there's no shortage of books, TV shows, movies that come out that portray the supernatural world of demons. Part of you might think, that's good news because demons and demon possession, that's real. Better than having a culture that does not believe in the supernatural. At the same time, any good news immediately turns sour when you realize that the vast majority of people are totally clueless as to what the Bible actually says about the very real world of demons. Those beliefs are based off Hollywood, not scripture, and the result is loads of misinformation about what the Bible says, superstition, error. And sadly, this has a way of backflowing into the church such that many Christians are rather ignorant and their beliefs are based on Hollywood and superstition when it comes to demons. When you pair this with the rise of the charismatic movement, it leads to real chaos, especially concerning demons and how to deal with them. Most Christians believe that the way you deal with demons is more or less described in the movie The Exorcist, right? You just get a couple of holy men, you equip them with some holy water, a shiny cross, a Bible, and they just have to endure a long distance or a long-term shouting match. You're telling the demon to come out in the name of Jesus, and that's pretty much it, right? I mean, good luck finding that in the Bible. Some Christians now believe demons can possess anything and are responsible for everything. So you'll see them performing exorcisms not just on people, but on chairs, houses, books, cars. Demons are accountable for everything. There's a demon of anger, demon of lust, demon of depression, demon of hair loss, and you name it. I'm not joking. This obsession with demons combined with theological error can turn deadly. Back in 2013, an Alabama mother was convicted of murder after killing two of her children and seriously wounding two others while performing an exorcism on them. She claimed to think demons were invading them. She saw their eyes blacken, she said. She knew an exorcism was the only way to to save them. She happened to be the leader of a group called the Demon Assassins. Talk about pure evil. This is the type of spiritual chaos you get when error creeps into the church. There are people who blame demons for everything, not sin, not their, their flesh or themselves, but a demon made me do it. And therefore, they think the way out is exorcisms instead of salvation, sanctification, spiritual growth. And the result is a false sense of deliverance. And don't misunderstand me. Demons are real. Spiritual warfare is real. It's just that most are engaged in it the wrong way, blindly swinging at the wind, offering no real defense, doing no real damage to the enemy. What passes for spiritual warfare today is about as misguided and as effective as slapping a surgical mask on your computer so that it doesn't catch a virus. You can tell that we need balance, and more importantly, we need the truth to set us straight. Too many people treat Hollywood as the authority on spiritual matters, and way too many people treat their own personal experience as authority. And this is a huge problem even in the church. 
There's widespread ignorance as to what the Bible actually teaches on these matters, such as demons and demonology. But it doesn't really matter what the Bible says. Someone had an experience. They saw something. They felt something. Their friend did. And you can't argue with that. They saw it. It must be true. It doesn't really matter what the Bible says. It's so hard to reach people when they're in that state to convince them otherwise. But now I hope you here believe that for us as Christians, Scripture is the authority, the highest authority. And when push comes to shove, which, which wins, personal experience or the Word? We're going to say the Word. Hollywood is almost always wrong, and personal experience is no infallible guide. It can be just as mistaken or misled or even deceived, but God's word is sure. So can you just tell me what the Bible says about the reality of demons and what to do about them? And that is what we're going to do this morning. Now, you're probably wondering, why are we doing this? Where is this coming from? And it sounds like a, a chipper way to ring in the new year, but... But I plan to do this study for a while, ever since we started Matthew's Gospel, really, and I think now is as good a time as ever, so I do want to give a little background of that. Ten years ago, I preached through the Gospel of Mark, and as you likely know, when you get into the four Gospels, you, you really encounter the world of demons in a big way. Demons are mentioned 104 times in the New Testament, 83 of those come in the four Gospels. So anytime you engage in a study of the life of Christ in the Gospels, you're going to run into the issue of demons in a big way. The thing is, though, that the gospel writers, they're not writing to teach us about demons. They're writing to teach us about the work and the person of Christ. Demons are only mentioned incidentally as they relate to the person and work of Christ. The gospel writers also assume their readers know a thing or two about this unseen world. Not once do they stop and argue for the existence of demons or demon possession. They just assume it's true, assume you know what they're talking about and move on. But the problem with this is that many people, especially today, have no biblical basis for understanding the unseen world, the world of demons or evil spirits. Therefore, when they start reading the Gospels, they encounter this this bizarre, mysterious, unseen world and are often puzzled by it. Who or what are these evil spirits? Where did they come from? Why aren't they mentioned that much in the Old Testament? What do they do? What are their powers? What are their limits? What should we do about them? Now, questions abound, and neither Mark nor Matthew stop to do a little Q&A, but that actually is a luxury we have. We can slow down a little bit and search the Scriptures broadly to, to build a biblical basis for this issue, and that's what we want to do this morning. You know, with this in mind, 10 years ago, going through Mark, I remember stopping to do a little three-part series on demonology, what the Bible says about demons, to really aid our understanding of Mark's gospel. And I always thought I would do the same with Matthew, and so here we are. And I should say, God's Word doesn't change. It doesn't need updating, but we do, and we need reminders. And this will serve as a good reminder and way to recalibrate us for the sake of going through Matthew's gospel in the long haul. And also put in a lot of time to rework and, and rebuild these studies just to improve the organization and their presentation. What the Bible says about demons. You know, we've already encountered some passages in Matthew where just a a strong understanding of what the Bible says about demons would have been really helpful, like Matthew 8, the Gerasene demoniacs. Even now, the timing is perfect to learn more about this world. We're currently, normally on Sunday mornings, we're in Matthew, we're going through Matthew 12. It's a key chapter. 
We just saw how the opponents of Jesus accused him of casting out demons by the ruler of demons, the devil. Matthew's not trying to teach us about demons in Matthew 12, but he ends up telling us quite a bit. And then whenever we resume Matthew, the very next passage, I think might be the most enigmatic passages on demons in the whole Bible. I'll read it for you. It's Matthew 12, 43 through 45. It's where Jesus says, Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself. And they go and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Now, I'm not going to explain that now, but you can see what I mean. Like, what is he talking about? There's this whole unseen world of angels and demons. And I'll just say, the more we know about it, the better we can appreciate our Lord, because a lot of what Matthew says about the person and work of Jesus comes in contrast or in relation to that unseen world. And furthermore, every time we see one of these encounters with demons in the Gospels, it, it can't help but beg the question, like, does this still happen today? Are they still out and about today? Can people still be possessed? And if so, what are we supposed to do about that? And questions abound. And so hopefully you can see this study, it's, it's far more relevant and important than you might think. Our goal, as always, is just to honor God. And we know how important rightly understanding the scriptures is to that. We want to get God's word right. We want to avoid the serious error that we see around us today. So that's why we're going to, yet again, devote some time to understanding what the Bible says about this. You might be surprised and even shocked by what the Bible actually says about the world of demons, but I trust and hope you will be equipped and edified for your own spiritual walk as God has revealed what we need to know for a reason. Now, this is still an ambitious undertaking, so we're going to split it up over several parts, and we'll employ a little Q&A style just to keep things organized. And so this morning, for the first opening salvo, we have eight Bible-based questions and answers about demons, just to get us started. Eight Bible-based questions and answers about demons. So let's, let's start. And the first two we have to do back-to-back, so one and two, we'll go back-to-back. First, you know, what are demons? Two, where did demons come from? We have to start back-to-back. What are demons? Where did demons come from? So at the ground level, very first verse in the Bible, Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God made all things visible, from planets to plants to humans, but he also made some things invisible to us, at least. And in the realm of the heavens, he made these heavenly beings. Colossians 1.6, speaking of Christ, says, For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Like, so what are these invisible things? It's not just talking about air. God created a, a class of non-corporeal beings. We, we call them spirits. They're often referred to in Scripture as the heavenly host. These are beings who just belong to this spiritual realm called heaven. Now, God himself is a spirit, and he has no body. John 4, 24, God's, or Jesus said, God is spirit. 
And these other spirits, that means compared to humans, they are a higher order of being, closer to the being of God than humans, but by no means are they God or gods. They're creatures. They're still created beings made by God for his purposes. Nehemiah 9.6 says this, praising the Lord. It says, you alone are the Lord. You have made the heavens, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them. You give life to all of them, and the heavenly host bows down before you. Job 38, 6 and 7 is also, uh, also a key passage. It indicates that before God created the physical world, he made this heavenly host, and then these newly created spirits, these morning stars, even as we sang this morning, they, they bear witness to the rest of creation, and they're pictured as praising God. So as God makes the sun, moon, and stars, this, this heavenly host is watching, marveling, and praising God. Now, the term we most often associate with these spiritual beings is angel. The word angel itself just means messenger, and sometimes the word is used to refer to human messengers, but it's used often enough of these divine messengers that kind of stuck as a label. And so we often refer to the heavenly host as angels. And we just passed Christmas time, which means we were reminded once again of Luke 2.13, where after a single angel announced the coming of Jesus to a group of shepherds, after that it says, a multitude of the heavenly host appeared in the night sky, praising God. All right, so where do demons fit into all this? Well, the term demon in the New Testament is simply the label Jews gave to evil spirits. These are spirits. Fundamentally, we're talking about the same spiritual beings God created in the heavenly realm. These spirits were all created good and holy, but some became evil and unholy. And this is how demons are often described in the gospel. Sometimes they're called demons, but often just unclean spirits, evil spirits. Another label might be fallen angels. This is why you can't really separate the definition of demons from their origin. All we can say is sometime after the seventh day of creation, when God said all things were very good, and then before the fall of man where, where Satan shows up, at some point a rebellion took place in heaven. Satan himself was one of those angels, likely the greatest one created, but he rebelled against God as if he could be God. And according to Revelation 12, verse 4, it teaches that one-third of the holy angels fell with him. Therefore, we can rightly say demons are fallen angels, or now unholy angels. This is supported in Matthew 25, verse 41, which says that the eternal fire was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. They now go with him. Also, we learned in Matthew 12, in the passage we were in a little while ago, how Satan is identified as the ruler of the demons. It appears demons are fallen angels who joined Satan's rebellion and submitted to his wicked rule, where they now serve him, opposing God and his purposes for the world. All right, that's enough for a foundation. Let's throw in a, a third question here. What are demons like? What are demons like? It's another broad enough question that enables us to keep you know, filling in some biblical data, uh, the basics on demons. What are they like? Well, first, they're personal beings, meaning they're persons. They possess the qualities of personhood 
And that would be intellect, emotion, and will. Do demons possess intellect? Yes, we see them knowing truth and falsehood. In fact, we'll learn they're the source of false doctrine. Do they possess emotion? Yes, we see them experiencing great fear at the presence of Jesus, knowing what he might do to them. Do they possess will? Yes, we see them exercise volition. They desire to be cast into a herd of swine. That's If it were up to them, they have a, a will. So they are personal beings like us. Demons are also moral beings. And they know right from wrong. They're capable of doing good, doing evil. This is why they'll be held morally responsible for their actions and rebellion. They're going to meet God's judgment. Of course, demons are, are given over, the ones that have been given over to doing evil. The Bible says much about evil spirits, and then you have holy spirits, angels. And then, of course, there's the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, God the Spirit. But demons, evil spirits, you see the contrast between holy spirits and the Holy Spirit. Demons are not clean, they're unclean. The Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth in John 14, 7. But demons are called deceiving spirits, 1 Timothy 4, 1. Angels are called ministering spirits sent to render service to believers, Hebrews 1, 14. But demons are oppressive spirits. They're working only to mar God's creation. Whereas God's Spirit sets sinners free, Satan and demons seek to bind and enslave entrapping mankind in their futile rebellion against God. Let me throw in a few more kind of facts to round out this, this starting general introduction to, to demons. We would say their numbers are fixed. Jesus said the angels do not marry, and so we would presume that they therefore do not reproduce. This makes sense, given that as far as we know, there, there's no female gender among the angels. I'm not saying that for a fact, we just don't know, but we can't say for a fact that there's not a single example of a female angel or demon in the whole Bible. Also, demons maintain some sense of order. You might picture them as completely irrational creatures of chaos, but while their rebellion against God is irrational and they sow discord among men, they appear to be united in purpose and organized against God. As we noted earlier, demons operate under Satan's command, and there are several passages that identify ranks and order among the demons. For example, Ephesians 6.12 says, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. A lot of those Greek terms are used elsewhere specifically of like ranks, although we don't necessarily know which one's which, but there appear to be different orders among angelic beings, different power levels, but the Bible tells us nothing further than that. Now, speaking of power, though, leads to the next question, question four. How powerful are demons? Just how powerful are these beings? How powerful are demons? Demons are by no means divine but Satan, along with his demons, are everywhere presented as formidable spiritual foes. Hebrews 2.7 says angels are a higher order of being. Mankind was made lower than the angels. They are more majestic creatures. How so? 
Well, let's clarify. This would, this would count for Satan, angels, and demons at this point. First, demons are not omniscient. They do not know all things. They don't possess God's level of complete or perfect knowledge. And very importantly, there is zero biblical evidence that they can read your thoughts, read your mind, know what you're thinking. This also explains, side note, why praying to angels is both unbiblical and illogical. Just because they're spiritual beings does not mean they can automatically read the thoughts of millions of people at the same time. That said, it's safe to say demons are vastly more intelligent than mankind. I mean, at the very least, they've been living since creation. I think that means they probably gathered a few things. They have a vast knowledge of God, of creation, of man. There's no evidence they read minds, but they probably don't have to just by mere observation of mankind for thousands of years that they have nailed down the human condition. I think they know just how to tempt, to test, to afflict with great success. Secondly, demons are not omnipresent, meaning that they only exist one place at one time. Omnipresence being everywhere present, that is an incommunicable divine attribute, meaning only God is omnipresent. If demons seem everywhere, it would only be because of their great numbers. Revelation 5.11 pictures myriads of myriads of angels in heaven. Myriad was just, just the Greek term for innumerable. So you could say at the very least, there's millions, if not billions of angels and therefore demons. Now, throughout the New Testament, many references to the activity of Satan are in reality references to the work carried out by demons. Now, very shortly, we'll encounter in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower. And Jesus starts off with the seed sown by the road, which birds come and take up before it can implant. And he goes on to say this is the work of the evil one, Satan, who snatches away the gospel before it can implant in someone's heart. But Satan himself is not omnipresent. He must carry out that work through his forces under him. And I'm certain that if we were allowed to play back the tape of our lives in heaven, I'm certain we would be shocked to see the role demons played in so many of our trials, temptations, and tests. We don't have eyes to see them. They work essentially undetected in the spiritual realm, and we are not meant to speculate. It's futile and pointless, but thankfully we don't need to live in fear of them. We'll see later, but we do need to be aware and be on guard. Lastly, though, we'll mention demons are not omnipotent. They're not all powerful like God. Compared to God, they're powerless. We see demons being easily subdued by Jesus with just a word. And they have to obey him. So there's no real power struggle there. But compared to humans, they possess a much greater power. 2 Peter 2.11 describes angels as being greater in might and power, and that would obviously apply to demons as well. They can afflict, oppress, and even possess humans, which can lead to great physical harm or death. Even though the goal is not to teach about demons, I think the story of Job is rather quite instructive here. If you go back and read Job 1 carefully, it's not just Satan who is presented before God. It says a group of the sons of God are with him. And in context, given their evil intentions and how that term is used elsewhere, that can refer to none other than demons. 
They had spent many days roaming the earth. And it was the Lord who called to their attention Job, a man of true and great faith who feared God. At that point, Satan determined to show that Job only worshiped God because God blessed him so much. If only he took everything away from Job, Job would curse God. And so God allowed this test to happen. He put Job in Satan's power. And so what happens next if you keep reading Job 1 into Job 2? It says all of Job's oxen were stolen by Sabaeans, an enemy group. Then all of Job's sheep were killed by fire from heaven. Could have been lightning, could have been supernatural. Then the Chaldeans stole all of Job's camels and slew all of his servants. And then a great wind blew down the house his ten children were dining in, and they all died. A little later, God allowed Satan to afflict Job's body. Thereafter, Job was struck with boils from head to toe. All right, now, there are a million lessons on suffering and divine sovereignty. That, that is the point of Job, not what we're focusing on right now. But consider what this passage teaches about the power of Satan and presumably demons. I would contend that Satan acted through the demons who were with him to carry all this out, to afflict Job. And so what kind of power did they evidence to make Job suffer? These are spiritual beings. We have no idea how much they can actually interact with this physical world, to what degree. But somehow, whether through possession or temptation or influence, somehow they inspired these raiders to attack Job and his his flocks. Somehow they exerted power over natural elements from wind to fire to cause great harm. And then somehow they produced disease in Job. You put it all together, I would say this, this makes them rather powerful. They, they have a, a degree of power that goes beyond ours for sure. The only silver lining here is that Satan and demons are on God's leash. He's sovereign over them. They don't seem to be able to afflict mankind without sovereign purposes behind it. The amazing thing, though, is that in all this, From Job's perspective, again, if you read closely, he had no idea his afflictions were coming from evil spirits. Every single one of his sufferings to him had a natural cause. He never would have been able to identify a supernatural source behind all of his trials. And he he never learned in the end. This too has to be part of the power of demons and that they essentially appear undetectable to us. I'll say again, I think we'd be totally shocked to learn just how much demons impact world events. But I would, I would say again, I would caution you against futile speculation because that's all it is, futile speculation. We simply are not given eyes to see such things, nor are we ever once directed to try and identify the, the demonic cause behind this or that. It's futile, empty speculation we're warned against. Just stick with what we know, what's been revealed, what we can see. Let's focus on that. Now, speaking of, what can we say concretely about the activity of demons? Call this question five. Keeping it simple, what do demons do? What are they up to? There's some of their activities. What do demons do? Once again, Hebrews 1.14 describes angels as ministering spirits sent to render service to believers. I think it's safe to say that's what demons do, but the opposite, right? But for evil. Together, Satan and demons, we find, aggressively oppose God, his works, his will. It's unclear how self-deceived Satan and demons are, whether they think they can actually win 
in this rebellion against God. Sin is irrational. But at the very least, they're happy to take out their aggression on God's creation. And that puts humans in the crosshairs because we are the pinnacle of God's creation on earth. Only mankind was made in God's image. Demons, therefore, seem to focus their attention on defacing the image of God in man. They seek to rob God of glory by holding man captive, preventing him from true worship. How do they go about doing that? I'll tell you the number one way clear in Scripture is by aggressively opposing the truth. Aggressively opposing the truth. According to Hollywood, what do demons do? Well, they exist to terrorize people, as if you're stuck in a horror movie. So they make the lights flicker in your house. They make weird sounds in your house. They might show up as some bizarre apparition doing, you know, contortions. All their goal is just to literally scare you to death. But no, biblically, Satan and demons know all too well that that the top way to oppose mankind is just to keep people away from the truth of God and his salvation. They're just like birds going after seed on the road. They're going after the gospel because that's the power of God. They seek to silence it, diminish it, or I would argue even worse, to counterfeit it, to alter it. It should come as no surprise then to find that demons are behind false religion and idols, according to the Bible. It's actually a huge theme I want to show you. Deuteronomy 32 records the Song of Moses. It's a prophetic recounting of Israel's past and future. Moses foresees the time when Israel will be in the land, and he knows they're going to go astray. They're going to go after foreign gods and worship idols. Here's what he says, Deuteronomy 32, 16. Speaking of Israel, they made him jealous with strange gods, with abominations. They provoked him to anger. But who or what was behind these strange gods, he says in verse 17, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known. Moses identifies demons as the real source behind these idols and false worship. The same goes for Psalm 106, which likewise recalls how Israel forsook the Lord and went after foreign gods. Listen to how these these pagan idols and gods are described. Psalm 106, verse 34 through 37. Again, speaking of the Israelites, they did not destroy the peoples when they entered the land, as the Lord commanded them, but they mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which became a snare to them. They even sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. There's another link between this idolatry and demons. One example, you know, there's an ancient deity named Molech. And do you know how they worshipped Molech? They built a very tall statue with outstretched arms, long outstretched arms, and they would light a great fire under the arms, and then you would take your son or daughter, place them on top of the arms, and he or she would then roll down into the fire. And you'd be sacrificing, killing your child to worship this deity. Do you think that's demonic? I would say that is Pretty clearly demonic, and I'd bet a lot of money that these same demons have set up shop at Planned Parenthood now. The Apostle Paul makes the same connection in 1 Corinthians 10. He's teaching explicitly on idolatry. Paul knows an idol is not real. 
It's not a real thing. It's not a real God, this wood or stone statue. It's just nothing. It's nonsense. But at the same time, he argues there's something real behind it, though. 1 Corinthians 10, 19 through 21. He says, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, but I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord, communion, and the table of demons. There's a bigger context there about eating meat sacrificed to idols beyond our scope right here. But Paul agrees with Moses, though, that, that demons are behind idolatry, false worship. They're energizing the false religions of the world. We learn in 2 Thessalonians 2.9 and Revelation 16.14 that Satan and demons can work and perform false signs and wonders. How do you think Pharaoh's magicians reproduced a few of the ten plagues? And surely they use such power to convince people that their God or their religion is real. In reality, though, all false religions counterfeit the truth and lead people away from God. And so it's pretty safe to say from everything we see in the Bible, the the primary activity of demons, what are they doing? Is to just aggressively oppose God's truth, to inspire falsehood worldwide. And this makes perfect sense. Because the main battle Satan fights with God is a truth war. Satan is called the father of lies. He deceived Eve and killed mankind with a lie. And you can bet that his demons are doing the same thing. Even inside the church, demons are presented as the ultimate source of falsehood. Through false believers, demons are able to bring heresy into the church. Listen to 1 Timothy Chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Again, I'm sure you'd be surprised to learn how much heresy over the centuries was demonically inspired. But now maybe you can understand why Paul says that as Christians, we do not war according to the flesh. Our weapons are not of the flesh, but he says they're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, in which we're fighting a truth war. And so he says in 2 Corinthians 10.5, we are destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God. We're taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. And then again, Ephesians 6.12, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, while the Bible overall teaches that demons are quite preoccupied with fomenting falsehood in the world, that doesn't mean they're entirely uninterested with physically afflicting people. One way they do that is through possession. So that would merit its own question. So we'll say question number six. What is demon possession? What is demon possession according to the Bible? Demon possession 
refers to a, a demon or demons indwelling a person and exercising control and dominion over that person, which cannot be resisted. This is different from demon oppression, which is external. For example, it appears that King Saul in the Old Testament was externally tormented by a demon, although it doesn't tell us what that looked like. But the Gospels describe people who are clearly not just oppressed by a demon, but possessed. Sixteen times the Gospel describes a person as having a demon, and the 13 times uses a word that says they're demonized, meaning demon-possessed. The Gospels use the language of demons going into a person as if they're taking up residence and they need to be cast out. This is what differentiates possession from oppression. Possession means the demon is indwelling, the demon is in control, the demon cannot be resisted, and this is why some form of deliverance is needed. The effects of demon possession are varied. We sometimes see physical symptoms like muteness, deafness, blindness, dumbness, seizures, self-mutilation. We have to add, though, we've already studied this in Matthew, that not all sickness is due to demons. In fact, the vast majority seems entirely unrelated to demons. We established that. But it must be said that when we do encounter demon possession, it often comes with some physical affliction. Demons also affected the mind, producing a type of madness or torment and bizarre behavior in their host. But again, we have to say, demon possession, it's not the same thing as what today you might call schizophrenia or mental illness. Alex Konya, in his book on demons, points out two huge differences between mental illnesses and true demon possession, namely rationality and relationship. Demons, when they appear, they're they're actually always rational and logical. They spoke with clear purpose and meaning. They had real discussions. It wasn't just all gibberish coming out of a person. This is not the case with schizophrenics and mental disabilities producing irrationality. The demons also had a very clear understanding of self and others. You also could recognize demons by supernatural abilities. Demon-possessed people had a supernatural knowledge sometimes, a clairvoyance where they, they knew things, they shouldn't have otherwise known. Sometimes they had a supernatural power where they could do things they shouldn't otherwise be able to do. And they had a supernatural personality. It's where the lights are on. It's just someone else's home. Now, the issue of demon possession is, is significant. Since we're on topic, we need to ask a vital question. The question comes up often enough. Number seven, can demons possess believers? Can demons possess believers? need to clarify and thankfully add good news here that the Bible teaches it's not possible for demons to possess true believers. A born-again, regenerate believer cannot, categorically cannot be indwelt by a demon. How do we know this? Well, a few things. First, there's zero examples or evidence of any true believer being indwelt by a demon in the whole Bible. Also, there are zero warnings for believers about being possessed and then what to do about it. You know, in, in all the epistles, demon possession is mentioned zero times. There's not a single instruction about it. Also, there are crystal clear theological factors that conclusively argue against believers being able to be possessed. You should know as believers, you're, you're God's possession. Colossians 1.13, he has transferred you from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son. 
which means you are no longer under Satan's lordship, which you used to be. You're now under Christ's lordship, and he will keep you from the evil one. Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 3 says, The Lord is faithful, and he will strengthen and protect you from the evil one. First John 4, 4, Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Speaking of the devil. And in 1 John 5, 18 through 19, it says how God keeps the one born of him. And it says, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are of God and that the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. We used to, but not anymore. Listen to this, Colossians 1, If you're a believer, it says you have Christ in you, the hope of glory. So we're indwelt by Christ. Ephesians 1.13, if you're a believer, you have the Holy Spirit in you. You've been sealed by the Spirit. And then John 14.23, if you're a believer, you even have the Father in you, making his abode in you, Jesus taught. So you put it together, it's like at salvation, the whole triune God takes up spiritual presence within us. And look, God does not like sharing room with demons. 1 Corinthians 3.16, Do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells within you? Being permanently indwelt by the Holy Spirit is one of the defining characteristics of the new covenant, new covenant of salvation. And there's just no way an evil spirit can overpower or push out the Holy Spirit, nor would the Holy Spirit ever dwell together with an evil spirit within us. 2 Corinthians 6, 14 through 16 it says, what harmony has Christ with Belial, a synonym for Satan? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God, just as God said. I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God. They shall be my people. Only in salvation do we finally enter into that place of true worship where God makes us the temple and he's not sharing space. So just get it straight. Contrary to some of the chaos and error found in some Christian circles today, It is not possible for a true born-again believer to be possessed or controlled by demons. We'll see in future weeks, Christians can be externally tempted, afflicted by demons, but not possessed. But even at that, like Job, we have absolutely no knowledge of that. We have no eyes to see whether our trial or temptation is coming from the world, the flesh, or the devil. We have no idea. But then again, it doesn't matter because the response is always the same which we'll talk about in future weeks. But we must always be on guard in this truth war. As you stand firm in the truth of the gospel, just know that you are meant to live in confidence in Christ, not fear. We'll reinforce that in weeks to come. Now, the whole, the whole world of demon possession and what passes for exorcism and what we see in the Bible about casting out demons, that's its own huge subject. That will be our entire focus next week. For now, let's finish up with an eighth and final question. Just to round out this this kind of opening introduction, number eight, what does the future hold for demons? What's their end? What does the future hold for demons? You should know that there's no plan of redemption for the angels. They rebelled like mankind, but they will only ever know God's wrath. They'll never know his mercy. And that's God's prerogative. Hebrews 2.16 says, God does not give help to angels, but to man. And God is perfectly fair and just in doing so. He has mercy on whom he will have mercy. He hardens whom he hardens. 
But Jesus, you should know, he came as a man, not an angel, to redeem fallen man, not fallen angels. They are forever separated from God and left awaiting final judgment. And the demons seem to know their fate is sealed. James 2.19 says, you believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. And they know God, they know enough of this truth. They shudder at the thought of God, knowing their rebellion is futile. They also shudder at the presence of Jesus. You recall when the Gerasene demoniacs encountered Jesus, that the legion of demons inside them said this, What business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know a time is coming when they're done. They seem to know their days are numbered. Only judgment awaits them. I wonder how much of these angels were themselves deceived by Satan when they all fell. But ever since, nothing they can do about it. There's no, there's no plat, a path or plan of redemption for them. They're only left in their fallen condition to, <clears throat> excuse me, to wait God's judgment. Before that day, though, in the future, Scripture teaches demons will play a pretty big role in end times. Jude and 2 Peter teach that there were some demons who were so devious and, and wreaked so much havoc upon the world that God bound them in this place called the abyss until the final day. The abyss is basically like a, a death row holding cell for the worst demons. For example, Jude 6 says this. It says, angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode that God has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the day of judgment of the great day. But the thing is, at least some of these demons seem like they will be released during the tribulation to cause havoc on earth. Read Revelation 9. You find the fifth trumpet judgment. It's the abyss is opened. And some, if not all, of these demons come out and cause terror upon the earth and deceive many people. And then Revelation 9, the sixth trumpet judgment, sees the release of these four great mighty angels, fallen angels, that have been bound, it says, at the river Euphrates. And together, they kill a third of mankind. The tribulation will be a time of unprecedented destruction and deception upon the earth. And how much of that comes unseen to us, but at the hands of demons, it appears a lot. Countless people will subscribe to false teaching, even being led to worship the ultimate false idol, the Antichrist, literally the, the one who stands in place of Christ, but is no Christ. Revelation teaches that demons will play a huge role in the deception that falls upon the whole world. But then their end will come. Right? Satan and his angels, they're just no match for God and for the Lamb. We can safely presume that the fate that befalls Satan also befalls his angels. And with that in mind, Revelation 20 verse 2 teaches that after Jesus returns, it says an angel descends holding the key to the abyss Satan is then bound and thrown into this abyss for a thousand years. And we would figure, so also are all the other fallen angels. Throughout the millennial kingdom, they will no longer be able to deceive the nations. It says they're released at the very end for a final time, a short final rebellion, a final flurry of deception. But then the end comes quickly. It says fire from heaven consumes them all. Revelation 20 verse 10 says, and then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. 
The demons must share this same fate, again, as Matthew 25, verse 41 said, that this, this very fire was prepared for the devil and his angels. Indeed, all who rebel against God and his Christ find their ultimate eternal end in this same lake of fire. Our goal this morning has just been to be better equipped by the Word of God. We want to know what the Bible says about demons. That will help guard us against error and deception, both in belief and practice. We need that. And that also helps us far better appreciate our Lord and Savior Christ as we see Him in the Gospels. So much of that comes in contrast to this world of demons. But I should say that there's a good yet sobering reminder here at the end that rebellion against this God, it does not end well. God in his grand sovereignty has certainly allowed sin, evil, Satan, to pervade this world. And we know from Job and elsewhere, he does so for grand, glorious, greater good purposes. But don't let this fact escape your notice. All sin and evil gets judged in the end. Whether it's coming from humans or demons, doesn't matter. And we found there's no good news here waiting for the fallen angels. But there is good news waiting for mankind. We've referenced Hebrews 2 many times. Why not one more? You should really consider the wonder and the mystery that that captured in that passage, that knowing all this, and, and angels, they are far greater, more majestic beings. But at the same time, God sent his son, this would be the son of God and God the son, he sent him, to render aid to mankind. He did so by making him, it says, lower than the angels for a little while, namely a man. That this Jesus, God the Son, took on human flesh, lived as a man. Why? That he might suffer and die in our place, pay for our sins, rescue us from this domain of darkness. Hence, Hebrews 2.9 says that Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, So that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone, for every every of the sons of Adam, that is. And this is how Jesus, it says, would bring many sons to glory. Hebrews 2, 14 goes on. It says, therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. This Jesus came to set us free from sin and Satan and death. And we enter that freedom by faith in him alone. And so I would urge you today, what better day than New Year's Eve? But any day, today is the right day to run to this Jesus, to cling to him by faith. Don't let another day or week or year go by without the firm knowledge you are fixed in this only Savior. You need to make sure you're, you're right with him. You, you do that by surrendering yourself, your will. You pick up your cross. You follow him, the only Savior. You should hold nothing back. And certainly repent, put away all false idols. That ultimately includes yourself, where you stop living for yourself, your lusts and desires, but rather deny self and follow him. Find his joy. Worship this Lord. Then and only then will you receive the gift of forgiveness, new birth, eternal life, joy. And then and only then will you enter this coming glory 
That's where you get to add your voice, it says, to the myriad of myriads of saints and angels who together sing this, Revelation 5, 12. They sing, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and glory and honor and blessing. It says, and every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them, I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever. We will be there. We will sing that same thing. Let's make sure we render him the same praise right now and forevermore. Let's do that together. Now, Father in heaven, we again come before you this morning, and we want to render you great praise from our hearts and our lips, and I trust our lives for who you are and what you have done for us in our Savior Christ. We've, we've poured over your word this morning, searched it for what has been revealed about a world we cannot see, your world, this spiritual realm, but you've told us what we need to know, that, that one, we can be redeemed and brought to you, and two, we can be kept safe and free from the slavery therein. We all once were dead in our trespasses and sins. We all once walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. We once were all children of wrath, but this Savior came, took on human flesh, lived, died on the cross as a bondservant for us to render aid to mere humans, a lower creature. But in this, we see that the wonder, the marvel, the mystery of your love, your loving kindness, your self-giving love, I pray that moves us and any in here who haven't to repentance, to faith, to realizing what, what this life is about. It's about you, your glory, your name, your kingdom, not our own. When we find ourselves in you. We find that place of true joy and peace and security. Help us now, Lord, to live in that security, knowing in Christ we have victory over all things, and that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Now the things present, things to come, things visible, things invisible. Nothing can separate us from that love. May we worship in that, give thanks in that, live each day, each year with that in mind. We thank you for your truth. May it guide us always. May we be men and women of the book who are just always guided by your word. All to Christ's glory. It's in his name we pray. Amen.